It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Joe Biden was ready to quit his Senate career before it even started. It was Christmas 1972. He had just been elected, one of the youngest senators ever, a fairy tale. His wife, Nelia, and three kids were shopping for the tree when a truck broadsided their white Chevy station wagon at a rural intersection. Campaign paraphernalia littered the crash site. Nelia and their 13-month-old daughter, Amy, were dead before they reached hospital. The two older boys, Bo and Hunter, seriously injured. Biden was reluctantly sworn in as the senator for Delaware at their hospital bedside. Just a week ago, pundits were once again prepping Mr. Biden's political obituary. But that was before Super Tuesday. Now the question is, could Joe Biden complete one of the greatest political comebacks in November? With 241 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. Hello, I'm John Prido, and this is a podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and from now until Election Day, we'll take one theme each week and explore it in depth. Today, is Joe Biden the man to beat Donald Trump? They don't call it Super Tuesday for nothing, is how Biden put it himself. Votes in 14 states this week catapulted him into the lead in the delegate count that decides the Democratic Party nomination. The former vice president's resurrection poses new questions about a campaign that had been all but written off. Does he have the character and the organization to win? In this episode, we'll look into the data, into Joe Biden's past and his plans to find out. With me again to chew over all of this, Charlotte Howard, The Economist New York Bureau Chief, who's not in New York this week. Charlotte, you're in Chicago. How's that? It's good to be back. I lived here for four years when I was covering the Midwest. It was my base as I went from North Dakota to Ohio. So it's always good to be back in Chicago. Good to hear it. And John Fasman, who's been in Texas covering Super Tuesday. John, how did you get on? I got on very well. I was in Houston, which is the Chicago of the 21st century. And before the furious letters start coming, let me just plead my case. I was born in Chicago. Whole families from there love the city. But Houston feels like the sort of big, sprawling, vibrant, diverse, dynamic city where 21st century America is being born, just like Chicago felt for the 20th. Okay, Chicagoans, don't don't tune out right now. And John, of course, Joe Biden did remarkably well in Texas. Polls didn't suggest that he was going to do as well as he did. But you were there for his moment of triumph. He did quite well. I saw him on Monday in Houston, and it was, I think, the fourth time I've seen him in recent months. And he looked better than I had seen him look before. His speech was tight. It was well-delivered. There was a minimum of sort of rambling and getting off topic. He had a very receptive crowd. He looked quite good. Okay, well, we'll talk about how Joe Biden did on Super Tuesday in a minute. But before we do that, I want to begin by digging in some data. 
This was the week when the 2020 election got real. Millions of actual voters voted right across the country. It was an exciting week, not just for the Biden campaign, but also for people like Elliot Morris, who's a data journalist for The Economist. Well, the data we got was sort of a affirmation of Joe Biden's case for the nomination. All along, he has been saying that he's the bridge candidate that the Democrats need to win both black voters and sort of Trumpy non-college white voters in the Midwest um, and, and also those in the Northeast that people often forget about in places like Maine and New Hampshire. And, and the exit polling data from last night really uh, bear this out. So Joe Biden won among voters who said they preferred a candidate who would beat Donald Trump by a whopping 22 percentage points. Um, he won black voters by 41 points, uh, but he also won moderates and conservatives uh, by 28. Now, a, a lot of them uh, are black, but he also won the white voters uh, in the contest by nine percentage points. So if Joe Biden's case going into the nomination was that he's sort of a unifying force for the fringes, perhaps, of the Democratic Party, the Super Tuesday results come to his defense. And the converse of that strength, I suppose, is Bernie Sanders' relative weakness. Does the Super Tuesday result put to bed his theory of the election, that he would be able to tap into this reserve of non-voters and infrequent voters and get them to rise up and all vote for him and, and become part of a political revolution? Has that, has that idea been put to bed now, do you think? Right. So this question from Bernie Sanders, this can we turn out a bunch of new voters and reshape politics has always been a rather risky one. And the proof has never really been uh, there that this is a viable electoral strategy because it relies on changing behavior. It relies on getting non-voters to vote. Uh, and the political science research plainly tells us that that's a pretty hard thing to do. These political scientists um, David Brookman and Joshua Kala ran a large experiment in early 2020, and they found that for Bernie Sanders's uh, sort of non-voter, disaffected voter electability case to be true, that young voters would have to increase their turnout by 30% or 11 percentage points. Um, that seems really unlikely for young people. The exit polling data also suggests that Bernie Sanders's case is a pretty shaky one. Uh, Joe Biden, according to the exit polls, won among first-time Democratic voters and, and among disaffected voters. Well, there'll be more from Elliot in the Checks and Balance weekly newsletter from The Economist. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash checks and balance. John, let's begin with you. Let's hold up our hands. Last week, we were talking about the diminishing power of the party establishment, the Democratic Party establishment, and whether they were having a 1972 moment. But has the party struck back? Were we wrong about that? I think we were wrong about that. I think the party has struck back. And what that means is it's not, you know... I think that when, when you say that to a certain kind of Sanders voter, they imagine shadowy figures in a dark room sort of creating some sort of nefarious plan to stop their man from coming to power. That's not really what happened. You had three moderate candidates who had dropped out of the race coalesce around the other moderate candidate. I think one thing you also saw this week is that setting aside the merits of policies, Bernie Sanders is really good at rallies and really good at movement building and very good at organizing. I can't speak highly enough of what I saw his supporters doing in Houston this week, but he's really not great 
at politics. So Joe Biden has spent almost a half century in politics, building relationships, reaching out to voters from different backgrounds, working with politicians from different parties. And Sanders has spent that same amount of time as a lone actor, and it really shows. And as a result, Joe Biden has seen a fair amount of his policy preferences enacted, and Sanders has seen none. And so it shouldn't really be a surprise that the party coalesced around someone who they knew, someone who helped build the party, someone who had worked within it, over someone who seemed to have a fair amount of contempt for it. But if what Sanders says is true, that his paramount goal is to beat Donald Trump, then he has to make his tent bigger than it is. And he just hasn't really done that yet. And that showed on Tuesday. Um, Just to jump in on that, I do think it's correct that Bernie Sanders shows some of the weaknesses within the old party infrastructure and the party establishment. So I think that does still hold. More striking to me than the moderate candidates backing Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg backing Biden, Amy Klobuchar backing Biden, was the impact of James Clyburn's endorsement in South Carolina. It seemed to have a huge impact in exit polling on voters' reasons for supporting Biden. So, you know, if I, I do think that the arguments to some degree hold that Sanders has exposed the problems within the Democratic Party establishment. Nevertheless, James Clyburn in South Carolina, wow. I mean, that endorsement just showed the impact that one person's endorsement can have on a state in really galvanizing voters and getting them to the polls. John Fasman, can you explain that? You know South Carolina way better than I do. Why was Jim Clyburn's endorsement quite so important? And maybe you can explain as well, you know, who he is. Jim Clyburn is the House Majority Whip. He has represented his district in South Carolina in Congress for decades. And he's sort of a, he's by far the most powerful Democrat in the state. And exit polls showed that something like, I think it was 47% of voters in South Carolina said that Congressman Clyburn's endorsement was important to them. What I found striking is that Sanders afterwards said he didn't even ask Senator Clyburn for an endorsement. He said their policies were different. He didn't think that Clyburn would have endorsed him. And all that may be true. But again, it's stunning that somebody who wanted to win South Carolina's Democratic primary wouldn't even bother asking the state's most powerful Democrat for the nomination, despite their differences, right? But being the head of a political coalition, which is what Democrats are and what Bernie Sanders wanted to be, requires you know, managing and sometimes showing courtesy or even deference to powerful members of the coalition who might think differently than you. And he just didn't do it. Having said that, Congressman Clyburn has a long relationship with Joe Biden. He was always going to endorse Biden and was waiting for the right time. Uh, And his endorsement really did prove decisive in Biden's South Carolina victory, which itself proved decisive on, on Super Tuesday. So I agree with Charlotte, you cannot overrate the importance of that endorsement. So you score that as a win for the Democratic Party in in some sense, the institutional Democratic Party. Charlotte, last week you were sounding sceptical about the idea that Bernie Sanders might be able to energize all these new non-voters on the left and get them to the polls and then win these states on Super Tuesday. Are you now feeling vindicated? The evidence was really interesting from the states that voted for Biden. So you saw an increase in turnout in Virginia, in Tennessee, in Alabama, in Texas, These were states that Biden carried, not Sanders. So I do think you see an energized base. And I think the fact that they voted for Biden is an indication for just how much Democrats want to get Donald Trump out of office and that this turnout hypothesis could not prove to be particularly successful for Sanders, but may well help Democrats uh, in November. And John, Before Super Tuesday, you and I were talking about the possibility of a contested convention, and you went away and studied the rules to really understand how this might play out in practice. That now looks 
considerably less likely, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's very unlikely if it's just two candidates. I think you'll see one of those two candidates collect a majority of delegates. It may be a long race, but I doubt we'll see a contested convention this year. All right. Thank you both. We'll talk in more detail about how Biden might fare in a matchup against Donald Trump a bit later. Meanwhile, a reminder that if you want to read John Fasman's coverage of Super Tuesday, the rest of our coverage of America and the rest of the world, you can, by subscribing to The Economist, head to economist.com slash pod 2020 to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. One fun thing that you might enjoy in my pages, the US section, aside from all the Super Tuesday coverage, is a piece by Callum Williams, our economics correspondent, about why it is that contestants on The Price is Right, the game show, have become so much worse at guessing prices. And it turns out that the answer to that tells you an awful lot about how the American economy has changed over the past three decades. That link to subscribe again, economist.com slash pod 2020. One of the striking things about Joe Biden's primary victories is how well he's done with African-American voters. A number of things might explain this. His eight years as Barack Obama's vice president being the most obvious one. I've worked with Joe Biden. I've seen his leadership. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt uh, about what is in his heart and the commitment that he's made uh, with respect to racial equality in this country. Several attempts have been made to sever Biden's connection to black voters. Joe Biden promised to help our community. It was a lie. A pro-Trump super PAC called the Committee to Defend the President ran an egregiously misleading TV ad in South Carolina. Enough. Joe Biden won't represent us, defend us or help us. Don't believe Biden's empty promises. Some of Mr. Biden's Democratic rivals have also tried to loosen his ties to black voters without twisting the historical record. When she was still a candidate for the nomination, Senator Kamala Harris attacked Biden's record on busing. Let's be very clear about this. When Vice President Biden was in the United States Senate working with segregationists to oppose busing, had I been in the United States Senate at that time, I would have been completely on the other side of the aisle. It was the policy that forcibly desegregated schools after the Supreme Court had ruled educational segregation was unconstitutional. So on that issue, we could not be more apart. Busing was one of the most fraught issues of the 60s and 70s. It brought the interests of parents in conflict with the wider interests of society. All I want is a safe school. Hey, nothing else. Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. We want our kids When Congress passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, most Northern whites could get behind the need to abolish racist laws that stopped black Americans from voting or from sitting at the lunch counter of their choice. Many of those same white Northerners didn't see things the same way when the government began to desegregate schools by busing black children to schools in white neighborhoods. I wouldn't care if they were green or purple with the idea of putting my kid on a bus when I have a school right across the street from where they should go. The mild version of this opposition came in arguments from white parents that the government should stop interfering with their neighborhood schools. But in some cities, the fight over busing turned violent. In Boston, buses carrying African-American children to school were pelted with eggs and bricks. 
the National Guard had to be called in to keep the peace. In Wilmington, Delaware, where Biden was running for the Senate in 1972, as in other northern cities, this was a hot issue. Biden supported busing during the election. See, I went to the big guys for the money. I was ready to prostitute myself in the, man in the manner in which I talk about it. But what happened was they said, come back when you're 40, son. And so I had to go out. But the youngest man in the Senate soon faced pressure from constituents to change his mind. So he did. Biden became one of the leading Democratic opponents of forced busing in the Senate. Jesse Helms, a segregationist Republican senator, went so far as to welcome Biden to the ranks of the enlightened. This episode is not to Biden's credit. Busing was unpopular, but it was also effective. There's plenty of evidence that attending racially mixed schools benefits children. That said, there were also examples of schools that went downhill after busing was introduced, partly because of the reaction of parents to bringing what they saw as social engineering into the classroom. This history ought to hurt Biden, but it doesn't seem to. That might be because African-American voters don't place supposedly African-American issues above all else when they vote, in the way that pundits often assume they must. Or it may be that black voters are just remarkably forgiving of mistakes and believe that senators and vice presidents should be allowed to change their minds. John, let's start with you on this. Why hasn't busing hurt Joe Biden's reputation with African-American voters? He has a fairly strong record on civil rights, that notwithstanding. He also has a record of service to the first African-American president, Barack Obama. And I think that African-American voters, as we've seen, are America's most sophisticated and pragmatic. And what they want is what Democrats everywhere say they want, which is someone who will beat Donald Trump. And they think that Joe Biden is the candidate likeliest to beat Donald Trump. And so they seem to be willing to overlook really a shameful episode in the past in order to get that done. I think that busing is one example of many of how Joe Biden's record can be mined for people who want to criticize him. So he was first elected senator in 1972. That's a very long time ago. He first ran for president in 1988. Pete Buttigieg would have been sixth at the time. So you know, this is a guy who has many years, um, not just in public life, but particularly serving as a senator where you're involved in Senate hearings and you'll have tape from Senate hearings where you're involved in sponsoring and then passing many different versions of legislation. So there's going to be a lot of tape. There are going to be a lot of different specific episodes that you can pluck from Joe Biden's record to criticize him. And sometimes these are at odds. So, you know, he introduced and sponsored the Violence Against Women Act in 1990, which was really a huge achievement in that prior to the passage of that bill, you know, domestic abuse and sexual abuse had been deemed to some extent to be private matters or the fault of the victims. And that bill really changed that. On the other hand, you have Anita Hill and Biden's questioning of Anita Hill during the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, where Biden, you know, the tapes of him questioning her will not make him seem particularly like an advocate for women's rights. So you can really look at different pieces of Biden's record to make conflicting arguments either for or against him. I think it's important to acknowledge, though, who Biden will be running against. And so if you compare Biden's record on helping the African-American community compared with Trump's record, I have a feeling that more African-American voters will 
will turn to Biden. If you look at Trump's record on women, there are things that you can point to in Biden's record that women can fairly criticize. On the other hand, you look at Trump's comments about women and there's not really a comparison. John Fasman, Joe Biden has this extraordinarily long public life in America, stretching right back to when he was first elected as senator in the 1970s. And we should be mindful, we've been looking through the archives, and I know you will be looking forward to the quiz later, but The Economist has been writing off Joe Biden since 1986, it turns out. We wrote then that he'll be an engaging candidate on the stump, quick-witted, forceful and candid. But then a bit later in the year, we said, Americans accept that he, Joe Biden, is a communicator, but are not quite sure what he's communicating. Looking at Biden's record in public life, what are the weak points? Where are the places that the attack ads will land if he's the Democratic Party's nominee? Well, Charlotte's right that byproduct of a long career in politics is lots of fertile ground for opponents to throw attack ads at you. So if you think back to his 1988 race, he was dealing then with accusations of plagiarism. He had taken some lines from a speech by Neil Kinnock, Britain's labor leader, who is a stunningly unsuccessful politician. And I think he had also faced some accusations of plagiarism in his academic life. And a journalist asked him a question at an event of his. What law school did you attend? And where did you place in that class? And he snapped back and made fun of the guy's IQ in a way that seemed quite unpresidential. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only need 123 credits. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. In 2008, I also think he seemed a bit sort of insubstantial. You remember he made that comment about Barack Obama being clean and articulate. In a different light, those sorts of gaffes served to humanize him. And it's interesting, candidacies like the one that he's running, right, a restoration candidacy, those usually don't work. If you think of Bob Dole in 1996 and John Kerry in 2004, who didn't really have visions of their own, they just wanted to get the guy in office out, those usually fail. I wonder if it will be different this time just because Donald Trump is so polarizing that he may be able to get away with being a weaker but more reassuring candidate than would ordinarily win a presidential race. That's a really interesting observation. I feel like restoration candidacies, as you say, aren't meant to work. But then in 2016, Donald Trump was trying to make America great again, which in a way was a restoration candidacy. Yes, but that was such a sort of that was sort of a radical restoration, right? He obviously had tremendous personal contempt for Barack Obama, but Obama was leaving anyway. So it was a sort of 50 year, you know, let's take America back 60 years instead of let's get this guy out who's in office now. And Joe Biden's nostalgia is really for 2015, isn't it? I mean, sort of anno pre-Trump. Yes. And I think a lot of Americans have that nostalgia for let's just get things back to the way they were. We weren't in a sort of state of agitated panic all the time. Charlotte, I began by mentioning the 1972 tragedy in which Joe Biden lost both his first wife and his daughter. Um, His elder son later died aged 46, Beau Biden. Grief is a really big part of Joe Biden's life story, isn't it? Is it also somehow an electoral factor? Well, he's made it central, actually, to his identity and the the sense that he gives voters of his character. In his speeches in recent days, both in South Carolina and in Texas, which were some of the more well-delivered speeches he's given recently, he really appealed to this vision of himself as a healer, this idea that, you know, America is, is hurt and that he will help to bring the country together. Um, He appealed to this sense of moral decency 
and appealed to the idea that there's a battle for the soul of America that's underway. And he talks about the need for a respected leader, a leader with honor and decency. And these sort of stem to voters' perception of Joe Biden's character. And that character is in turn linked to his ability to move through periods of extreme grief with grace and and to recover and to move forward. So it has become quite central to who Joe Biden is. I do want to go back, though, to this conversation of how uh, Joe Biden will be criticized. And, you know, the, the best version of Joe Biden is one in which he is able to to cast himself as sort of a, a good person who will help to lead America forward, restore America's standing in the world, restore a sense of dignity to the White House. But Joe Biden has to battle not just against his opponents, but also against his own tendencies on the stump and his tendencies on the debate to be long-winded, to be meandering, to sort of misspeak in ways that make him look like he might not be up to the job. Trump, in his tweets, has always, this is what he first seizes on when he's trying to criticize Joe Biden. So he has to try to maintain this presentation of a person whose experience is an asset, who is a dignified and honorable public servant. And that will be at odds with people who try to characterize him as someone with a spotted record and someone who is not up for the demands of the presidency. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about what kind of president Joe Biden would be. To finish off, let's cast ahead a little bit. This is an extraordinary man with an extraordinary career in public service. The Biden campaign has just launched an ad in states with primaries next week. Among them, Michigan, a crucial Midwestern battleground come November. Champion landmark legislation to protect our women from violence. Joe's candid, honest counsel made me a better president and a better commander-in-chief. Experience is central to Biden's pitch. But what are his plans? The best part is he's nowhere close to finished. I asked Idris Kaloun, U.S. policy correspondent for The Economist in Washington, to run through them for us. They're definitely further to the left of either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. Barack Obama wanted to do a public option as part of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, but wasn't able to get it passed. Biden is now fully endorsing that. He's for a $15 minimum wage. His climate change plan requires $2 trillion of extra spending and would impose also uh, much more restrictive kinds of rules on, on energy generation. He wants America to be net zero emissions by 2050. These are all, I think, a bit further than what Barack Obama would have done. I think this race so far has been characterized as whether you're for Bernie's plans or not. And because he's, he's decidedly not, We've kind of, I think, overlooked the fact that he is a good bit to the left of where Obama was running or Hillary was running. Joe Biden's pitch is partly, if you go and hear him on the stump, a return to the status quo pre-Donald Trump. But it sounds like his policies are are different to that, right? They're, they're not actually the policies of the Obama-Biden administration, as he likes to call it. No, no, I think they go further, but they have the same affect in the sense that it is not as much, you know, my way or the highway. Um, there has been some innovation, some rethinking. Climate change is obviously now a much bigger issue than it was then. Uh, and I think that Biden has come up with a plan that he thinks is suitable to meet that challenge. Uh, many more American voters, for example, say that climate change is the most important issue to them. It's a second only to health care and only by a sliver than, than was the case before. 
before that, you know, you had the Great Recession, you had Iraq before that. The economy and foreign policy played much bigger roles in how Americans pick their president uh, than it seems like it will in this cycle. Climate is a good window into Biden and a way to compare him to other candidates, I think, because if you think about where we were, take gay marriage as an example. In 2008, Barack Obama, when he was running for president, he was uh, supportive of civil unions, but he is quoted as saying, I believe that marriage is the union between a man and a woman. And you saw how quickly his attitude evolved over time as it relates to gay marriage. And I think that climate change, similarly, you've seen a big shift in how aggressively candidates need to act and the future president will need to act to limit the most damaging impacts of climate change. Our listeners may or may not know that I spend most of my my day job writing about energy and writing about climate. And Biden's plan, you know, unlike some of the other candidates, he's in favor of a carbon tax, which economists uh, uniformly believe is essential to trying to curb climate change. He doesn't want to ban nuclear, which Bernie Sanders would. And most climate scientists do believe that nuclear power, because it's emissions free, will be an absolutely essential component of the energy mix going forward. He has not called for banning all fracking. He does want to limit drilling on federal lands. But it's it's an aggressive climate plan that is slightly more pragmatic than some of the other candidates' climate plans. And I think it's a good indication, his evolution, both in, in backing a very large and expansive climate program, as well as the nature of the specific proposals that he's put forward, helps to indicate how he's different from some of the other Democrats who have been in the field and certainly different than Bernie Sanders. Charlotte, you began by talking about gay marriage and to give Joe Biden his due there. He basically changed the Obama administration's position on this by announcing on a Sunday show, I think, that he didn't see why two men couldn't get married to each other. And then the administration swiftly, swiftly changed on that one. And John Fasman, you've been spending a lot of time with Sanders voters this week. How does this ideological split within the Democratic Party be- between you know, moderate Biden voters and Sanders voters who want something more out there. Um, how does that play out over the rest of the year? And does it make it very hard for whoever's the nominee come July to unite the different factions of the party? You know, how irreconcilable do you think they are? Every Sanders supporter I've spoke to, save one or two, has said that they would back the Democrat, whoever it is, in November. And the two who were hesitant just said it's going to be really hard. And and those were understandable sentiments, right? If you pour your heart and soul into a candidate, it will be hard to vote for someone else. As for how they get united, obviously, one way is for Biden to choose a progressive vice presidential candidate. As we have been recording this podcast, news has come through that Elizabeth Warren is dropping out. She would be an interesting choice for him. There may be a hardcore far left flank that stays home. But I suspect the desire to defeat Trump and some overtures from Biden to Sanders and his supporters will pull them in. So I suspect that this division seems quite stark now, but I would imagine most of the bitterness fades. And I have to add, to Sanders' credit, he said on Rachel Maddow's show last night that he will back whoever the Democratic nominee is and that he is sure that's true of the vast majority of his supporters as well. Charlotte, we mentioned in passing that the Biden campaign has started advertising in Michigan, another of your old stamping grounds. That'll be a key state in November. How do you think Joe Biden would match up against Donald Trump in the upper Midwest? Joe Biden was able to pull off a surprise win in Minnesota this week. We'll see how he fares in Michigan next week. But the Joe Biden brand of the Democratic Party generally does quite well in the upper Midwest. 
He is someone who historically has been able to win support from unions. He can hearken back, as he has for decades, to his family life in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and his father's work. So he has a message that I do think resonates in the upper Midwest. I think you're absolutely right. I think Joe Biden is really well-placed, especially in those three states that Democrats thought of as the blue firewall that fell, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. He's practically a hometown candidate in Pennsylvania. Delaware is right next to Pennsylvania. I think that may also explain his position on fracking. Bernie Sanders' anti-fracking policy seems like it would hurt him in Pennsylvania. Biden's more moderate policy helps him, I think, in Michigan. The governor, Christian Whitmer, came out and endorsed him. And Michigan also has heavy union presence, which is good for him, and also a strong African-American presence in, in, in Detroit and Flint and Lansing where he'll do well. Wisconsin, some people have suggested that he may consider picking Tammy Baldwin as his vice presidential nominee. That would be super interesting. She would be the first openly gay person on a major party ticket. She would also bring in some progressive support, and she's really popular at home. So if Democrats see their path to victory as winning back those three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, he's very well placed to do that. John Fassman, last time I saw Joe Biden up close was in Muscatine, Iowa, and he was speaking to a room of about 20 people. He spent two hours there, shook hands with everybody. And it looked at the time like his campaign was at a real low point. You know, anybody who had that much time to spend with so few voters probably wasn't doing that well. But one of the things that was interesting about listening to him talk then was he really tried to spin the Ukraine saga into a positive for him. So just to recap, a lot of people think that one of the weaknesses of Biden's candidacy is that he'll wind up having to explain why his son Hunter was on the board of this Ukrainian gas company and being paid quite a lot for doing so. Biden's spin on all of this as well. Donald Trump so wanted to get me out of this race that he was prepared to withhold assistance that had been appropriated by Congress to Ukraine's government. You know, he was prepared to bend all the rules in the book because he thought it would hurt me politically. I mean, who do you think comes out ahead there over the Ukraine stuff and impeachment, which again will be warmed over once more if Joe Biden's the nominee? Yeah, I think that argument that Donald Trump is so frightened of me, he's changing US policy to get dirt on me. That's good for the primary, right? That's an argument that tells Democratic voters, he's more scared of me than anyone else, which means I'm the candidate best place to beat him. He'll obviously need to change tack for the general. And I think he's probably best advised to just say, look, my son shouldn't have done that, had nothing to do with me. He'll tell the story over and over again. I think that an argument over nepotism comes back to bite Donald Trump quite quickly, given the elevated positions to which he has appointed his family members. I do think it's a test in part how he responds to the Ukraine problem is a test in part of his campaign's ability to be disciplined and keep him on message. I mean, there's a very clear answer that he should be able to provide when he's asked about it, if he can stick to it and seem like he's delivering it with conviction. That's been his problem historically, is that he's not actually able to give a very clear answer in general. When you ask him something, he sort of goes on for a long time. It's hard to get a good clean soundbite out of him. So I think broadly going forward, Biden needs to be able to be more crisp on the stump. And in some ways, he sort of has the Bloomberg problem where the idea of him is great. And then he just needs to be able to bear up that idea when he's actually out and about campaigning or on the debate stage. Last question to both of you. If you go back to the 2008 Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton tried to defeat Barack Obama by playing on her experience in government. She ran that famous ad asking who you'd want in the White House if disaster struck at 3am, you know, who's going to answer the call. But that 
Washington experience is Joe Biden's pitch now, isn't it? It hasn't worked hugely well in the past, either in primaries or in the general election. I mean, I think George Bush Sr. was probably the last true Washington insider to win the presidency. And there have been plenty of failures along the way since then. Do you think it'll work this time? Yes. Yes. Remember, the pitch that Hillary Clinton made contrasted her with Barack Obama, who in fact seemed to most voters, like someone who you would want in the White House when disaster struck at 3 a.m. He was rational. He was calm. He was brilliant. He had a sort of trustworthy temperament. The pitch that Biden is making is contrasting him with someone who has just told Americans to go to work if they have coronavirus. You know, they've seen how Donald Trump handles a crisis, and it ain't pretty. And so I think Biden's pitch lands much better than Hillary's did in 2008. Again, I think this goes back to the management of his campaign over the next several months. One thing that they can point to is the disarray in the Trump White House that is clearly on display with the coronavirus, but has been evident for some time now with many qualified people leaving the White House, advisors who have competence and experience being ignored in favor of people who will say yes to whatever it is that the president proposes. So this should be something that Democrats can point to as saying, you know, who are these hooligans running the White House? We're going to come in and not just restore a sense of decency and honor, which is part of Biden's pitch, but also just restore some basic good management. But that needs to be borne out in the way that the Biden campaign operates over the next few months. If there's a sense of disarray or that they're not quite on top of it, that will be harder for Biden to continue to make that argument. We'll we'll see how that plays out over the next few weeks. And I expect we'll be talking about coronavirus on the podcast next week. Before you go, it's quiz time. Joe Biden's first mention in The Economist was in April 1979 in a piece about Senate hearings on arms control. That same issue covered the start of the baseball season. The MLB was seeing record crowds that year and the players were receiving record salaries. The piece mentioned star batter Dave Parker of the Pittsburgh Pirates. What was his claim to fame? The first million dollar contract. John Fassman nails it straight away. (laughs) He was the first athlete to earn a million dollars a year. I remember that. John, given your very rapid answer to that, I think this second question, this follow-up will be aimed at you. There were picket lines at Yankee Stadium that year. Who was on strike? Uh, Were the umpires on strike that year? It was the umpires. They were paid $30,000 a year, and they were not That's happy right. about it. They, they felt that they ought to have something approaching Dave Parker's salary, perhaps. That's yet again a triumph for John Fasman in the quiz. Charlotte, what can I say? I'm, I, so it's sort of week, week after week. It's Just keep asking about baseball. It is deeply humiliating for me that I have, in this toss-up against John Fasman, I continue to not be able to answer questions. So I'm not sure what kind of preparations I need to do, but um, perhaps get some sort of Jeopardy training guide or something. But perhaps I'll, next week will be my, the beginning of my comeback. Uh, there's still plenty of time for comeback. I mean, we're going to keep going until November and possibly beyond. So don't worry, Charlotte. It's still all to play for, as a quiz host might say. I can barely remember the names of my two children, but my head is filled with useless information about baseball from the 80s and early 90s, um, if that's any consolation. Okay, next week, John, we'll be asking you what your children are called. We'll test that hypothesis. Please don't ask me that on air. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. Thank you, Charlotte. (laughs) Thank you, John. And John, where are you going to be next week? Uh, Next week, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., I hope. 
Very good. Um, how was the barbecue in Texas? We haven't mentioned food for ages. We haven't. I had no barbecue in Houston. Houston is my favorite American eating city, but that's because of the incredibly high quality of Mexican, South Asian, and regional Chinese food. So I ate well, but no barbecue. I'm glad you had a good time. Charlotte, where will you be? I was actually supposed to be in Houston meeting with all sorts of energy companies down there, but the conference was canceled because of the coronavirus. So I'll just be in New York with my colleagues. Everyone's preparing for the possibility that schools might shut and trying to make contingency plans. So looking forward to discussing all that with you next week. In the meantime, thank you both very much. Great. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. Please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. And if you haven't got a subscription to The Economist, you really should. The link is economist.com slash pod 2020. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.